Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 as we look at verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your, thought, in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the things that we are looking into today in your word are your deep things. Things that your people yearned to see and yearned to know firsthand for millennia. What they had of these things were types and shadows and promises. And here we are right now this morning looking at the substance of them. And so would you help us to be careful? Would you help us to think carefully? Would you help us to engage our minds, Lord? But would you also be with our hearts? Help us to be glad-hearted as we read such wondrous things today, because in this text, you have given us a precious gift. Help us to see it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Realizing that there are physicians and mechanics in this room, I will just say I have a fear of physicians and mechanics Let's just throw dentists in there as well, because you go to them for the one thing and they find three other things. And you know those things need to be addressed, but it is, it's, you don't want to deal with those other things. I came here to get my brakes replaced, not to get new axles or whatever. You know. and, and so this is why I fear them, because the problems always are bigger than you actually think they are. Uh, My dad had a heart attack in Salina, Kansas in a hotel room in 2001. He was rushed to the emergency room and stabilized. He returned home. A few days later, he needed to go back to the hospital for further tests. They suspected he might have diabetes. And when they tested his blood, they said, you do not just have diabetes. You also have had a heart attack and you have acute lymphoblastic leukemia which is the most common form of leukemia in children, but it is unusual and deadly in adults. Um, My father went to the doctor thinking that he might have one very serious problem, something that was going to change the rest of his life. He was dreading it, and it turned out he had something far more serious than that. 
And I think of my, my father when I think of, of a passage like this, because here this man is. He is. He's brought to Jesus for one very serious thing, right? There, it's hard to imagine something that a person lives with that's more serious than paralysis, right? How much worse can it get? He's going to Jesus for the most serious thing you can imagine. And, and what does Jesus do? He's like the doctor and he's like the mechanic that on the one hand you dread, because he takes a look and he says, this man's needs are worse than paralysis. Jesus is the expert in humanity, right? He, he made us and, and he understands us and he comprehends what is really wrong with us. He, he walked in our shoes. Of course, he knows us. And so he stands ready to even help people in ways they don't even know that they need help. And that's really what he does today. He surprises everyone with what he does. And so let's just look more closely at this uh, miracle today under three headings. The first is true healing. The second is total heresy. And then the third is to him be the glory. Uh, True healing, total heresy, to him be the glory. Um, First, we see true healing. And when I say true healing, I mean the healing of this, that this man really needs. That's what I mean when I say true healing. The, the, the thing this man needed most. Um, I, I mentioned this before. You know, sometimes we, we think we need one thing. We, we think we've diagnosed ourselves. We think we know what the real problem is. And then God gives us something else that we didn't think we needed. And that's certainly what happens here. Just look at verse 2 again. Behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you might remember this story a bit differently. Matthew's version of this story that we're reading today simplifies the story. It actually removes some of the details. And the biggest detail that Matthew leaves out is the part that, that I noticed when I was in Sunday school as a kid. In fact, when I was a kid in Sunday school, the way this story was told the, the, it, the whole focus was not on even the miracle, and it wasn't even on the forgiveness. It was all about the fact that the roof came off, you know? It was like, this is the, this is, I was so focused obsessively on the fact that this house was so crowded that they had to lower him through the roof that I was just thrilled, right? And if you had asked eight-year-old Adam what was the miracle here, I would have said, I think it was a construction miracle, that they removed the roof of this house. And um, the thing is that there is a lot of potential for misdirection in this story. So much potential here. It is very tempting to focus on the roof. <laughs> it's, so, it's tempting to focus on the friends. Um, it's tempting to focus on how they get the man in there. Um, it's tempting to think about like this man's friends and focus on his paralysis. We're so easily distracted. Here Jesus is. He's, he's in an incredibly crowded building with the roof being removed. You can imagine the howls of the homeowner, just how angry the homeowner must be that they're doing this, right? Um, and, and yet you can just see Jesus looking over and, and listening to all of these people and, and the ruckus that must be going on. You have this person being lowered down. Oh, please don't drop him. Right? Don't let go of one of those ropes. I'd hate to see that guy go sliding off the end of this mat. He's already hurt. Right? You have his friends yelling at you, Jesus, Jesus, heal our friend. Right? 
and you're and they're telling him what they think their friends need and they're they're wrong about what their friend needs just think of of all of the factors going into this story it is chaos and it's all misdirection everything so far up to this point is misdirection except for Jesus so Jesus sees all the chaos he sees the madness it's honestly not unlike the storm that he was just experiencing the passage before. But for Jesus, it's not misdirection. He sees right through it all. He sees very clearly. He sees past the infinite distractions to the heart of this man's need. Here he is. We don't know how long he's been paralyzed. We don't know how long he's been unable to walk. But it is amazing to me that Jesus, well, it shouldn't be amazing to me, but it is amazing to me that Jesus is such a student of the soul that he could look and say, if this man walks for the rest of his life, but he doesn't find forgiveness, I will not be giving him what he needs today. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus says when he sees this man. And we don't think of forgiveness that way as modern people. As, as modern people, we think of forgiveness as a psychological issue that improves somebody's quality of life. We think we, we think, you know, I, I need to be forgiven so I can let go of the past and move on. Or, or we think I need to forgive others so that I can let go of the hurt that I've experienced, right? We think in therapeutic terms. We think in, of a self, self-centeredly about forgiveness as if it is mainly about what it psychologically does inside of us so that we can have peace of mind. We're anxious people. We know that we need forgiveness and so we think selfishly about it. We think, I need, I need forgiveness for the things that it can do for me. And what modern people don't understand, especially as Christianity becomes more of a cultural memory than something people are actually taught about, is the fact that forgiveness is about more than lifting psychological burdens. It is about restoring a relationship. And as long as unforgiveness persists between two people, whoever they may be, There will always be trouble there. There will be a a sore spot that no one can address. And this this happens on the human level. This happens between people. Um, But the thing that so many people don't consider is that because we are sinners, our sin breaks our ability for us to have fellowship with God. Right? It's, It's not just between us and other people. It is between us and God that forgiveness has to happen. Um, scripture shows us from the very beginning that this is the case, right? As soon as Adam and Eve sin against God, that relationship is broken. Now what happens? They fear him. They, they hide from him. They're removed from him. They're, the fellowship that they used to have when he would walk in the garden in the cool of the day is, is gone. And, and over and over in Scripture, you see people hiding themselves from God, fleeing from God, becoming fearful whenever God's presence is nearby. They, they look away from God. They try to escape God. They try to cover Him up. They try to cover themselves up. They try to do whatever they can. But it's wild because they want Him so badly. We want Him so badly deep down, and yet we are at the same time afraid of Him, and we are repelled by Him. There's this, there's this strange tension in, in human nature uh, where we want and we resist God all at once because of our sin and because we need forgiveness, but also because we were made for him. 
Uh, Herman Bovink says this in his book, The Wonderful Works of God. He says, the heart of man was created for God and cannot find rest until it rests in the Father's heart. Hence, all men are really seeking after God, but they do not all seek him in the right way nor at the right place. They seek him down below and he's up above. They seek him on the earth and he is in heaven. They seek him afar and he is nearby. They seek him in money, in property, in fame, in power, and in passion. He is to be found in the high and the holy places. They seek him and at the same time they flee him. They have no interest in the knowledge of his ways and yet they cannot do without him. They feel themselves attracted to God at the same time repelled by him. Um, The truth is we are repelled by him because he is holy, because we are not, and because we stand unforgiven. We have broken his law, and until we experience forgiveness and until we experience restoration to the Father's heart, which we were made for, we're going to continue to run and need him all at the same time. And that's this man. Whether you see it, or whether I see it, or whether the homeowner sees it, or the man's friends see it, or the religious leaders see it, or even the man himself sees it, Jesus does see it. This is a man who has been unable to walk, and he has been running from God all his life. And now it's like Jesus is saying, it's time for the paralyzed man to stop running. Isn't it so good that God gives us what we need and not what we ask for? He gives us what we need, not what we ask for. One of my favorite moments in all of scripture is that rhetorical question where Jesus says, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? I make that a subject of my prayer sometimes. I will say, oh God, I don't actually know what I need to ask for right now, but I know this. I need your help, and I know that you're a good father, and if I ask you for bread, you won't give me a stone. Please help me. Don't give me a stone. And you can pray those kind of prayers where you don't know what you're supposed to ask for, and you can come to him, and he'll say it. And then Jesus follows that up by saying, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right? It, that, that's the sort of promise that we can live by. That God does what is wisest. He does what is best. He answers our prayers in the best possible way, always. He always does. And frequently he surprises us by giving giving us something better than we ask him for. And, And sometimes we see in the moment that he's given us something better. And sometimes it takes years for us to make peace with the reality that he gave us something better. And sometimes we never quite see how he was giving us something better. And we have to trust that he was. And this is a passage where Jesus initially does not give this man what he thought he wanted. Right? The first thing Jesus says to him is not an answer to his request. Instead, he gives the man what he really needs. He gives him forgiveness. And that takes us to the second point we have, which is total heresy. Um, Look at the reaction of the scribes after he tells the man that he's forgiven. It says in verses 3 to 7, it says, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? 
For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Now, say what you will about the religious leaders here, but they at least see the seriousness of this, right? Um, They see what is so incredible about this moment. They know that forgiveness is no small thing. And, And this is a problem for us today. This is a problem for us in our own day because we read a passage like this and these sound like words to us. They just sound like words to us. They sound like the thing Jesus says to the man. And this is a problem because it doesn't strike us as all that remarkable that this man would be forgiven. That's a problem, right? And again, it comes back to our therapeutic categories of forgiveness. We think it's about feeling better. We think it's about feeling relief. And it doesn't strike us as remarkable for someone to be forgiven because we don't we don't understand God's holiness, mm-hmm. and so we don't know the cost of forgiveness. That's right. uh, there was a 19th century German poet named, and I might get his last name wrong, but is Heinrich Heine, H-E-I-N-E. And I had heard this quote for years, and I didn't know where it came from, and I went down the Google rabbit hole, and I found out who said this. Heinrich Heine, 19th century German poet, said, of course God will forgive me, that's his job. And when we start to believe this, how far we've drifted from the truth, right? Forgiveness is the biggest deal in all the universe. It's the biggest deal in all the universe. Forgiveness, forgiveness is the old promise. It's the thing that the Jewish people had held out to them for all of their existence, right? From the moment Adam and Eve fell... The thing they yearned for most was forgiveness and restoration. They just wanted to go back to the garden. They just wanted to go back. And when God's people offered him sacrifices, what were they doing? They're yearning for forgiveness. They're yearning to be acceptable in God's eyes just once again. Bring us back to Eden. And then... God told them how to build the tabernacle and carry the Ark of the Covenant with them. What were they doing? They were yearning for forgiveness. They put it at the center of the camp. It's the thing that they care about the most. When Solomon built the temple, it was meant to be a place of worship and reconciliation between God and his people. What did those people go into that temple yearning for? Forgiveness. When that temple was destroyed, they thought that, they, that the possibility of forgiveness had been ruined forever. And so what did they do? They built another temple and God was kind to them and he helped them to accomplish that. And the problem was the Jewish people had forgotten what was the point of all those ceremonies. And they forgot that they were types and shadows pointing them to the one who would bring them real forgiveness. There were still faithful among them, people even in uh, the Jewish people who yearned for forgiveness. They were waiting for the Redeemer to come. They knew that one day that forgiveness would finally be accomplished. What were they doing? They were yearning for forgiveness. This whole system, this whole superstructure of Hebrew society built around what? Finding forgiveness from sins and peace with God. And this man simply says to the paralytic, 
your sins are forgiven. The dream of the ages, forgiveness of sins. And this man is just handing it out like he has the right in this roofless house in the sticks. Something only God himself can do. And it's happening here in this place by the the mouth of a carpenter's son. And so instead of putting two and two together, which they should have done, (laughs) instead of rejoicing that God is forgiving sins right here in their presence, the scribes become incensed. And the accusation is raised, this is blasphemy. They say, you're violating everything we know by doing this. You cannot just forgive sins. You can't make that pronouncement. You can't do what belongs to God. You don't have the right. Now, Jesus does give the paralyzed man what he initially came for. But there is a purpose to it, right? Jesus Jesus makes an argument before he acts. He asks a question. Here's the argument. The argument is the question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? So he wants to, before he does this, he wants to be very clear what is about to happen and why it is happening. He's interpreting the event before it takes place so that there is no confusion about what's going on and what his motive is. He's giving them the rhetorical question. He's saying, yes, it is, is easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's easier for those words to come out of your mouth. That's true. Because you can't see forgiveness of sins, right? It is a pronouncement that you must take by faith. And so Jesus says, you just saw me say the easier thing. At least in theory, it's the easier thing. It's actually the hardest thing in the universe. It requires blood. It requires sacrifice. It's costly. Mm -hmm. But he's coming down to their level and he's speaking in a way that they understand. Jesus says, you saw me say the easy thing. Now watch this. And then he says the hardest thing. Why is rise the hardest thing to say? Because if he says it and the man doesn't rise up, everyone will know that it didn't happen. They will know. He's a charlatan. He's a fake. God didn't send him. Right? He's like, he would be like Babe Ruth pointing at the stand and then hitting a foul. You know? Um, If this man doesn't rise up, it's physically verifiable in a way that pronouncing forgiveness is not. He's making an argument from the greater to the lesser here. He says, if I can do the hardest thing, that shows that God, that shows and proves that God is with me. And it authenticates the easier thing <laughs> that I just said. God wouldn't allow a miracle through me if I'm lying about the forgiveness of sins. And so what happens? Well, you see it. Jesus is cleared of heresy charges, right? In front of everybody. And they leave him alone. See? Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. So he walks home, a verifiably forgiven man. Everything Jesus said comes true, all of it authenticated and verified. Now, the third point this morning is to him be the glory. Look at what, look at how the crowds respond to what happens in verse 8. It says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. 
So the passage gives us two responses to what takes place here. First, the ESV says when they saw it, they were afraid. So when they saw the man rise, they react with fear. Um, Another way of translating this is awe. They react with awe. Now, I'm not dogmatic about which translation is best, but I will point out that over and over and over again, you do see people afraid of Jesus. You see it, people afraid of Jesus after he does something wonderful, right? The people in the Gadarenes last week, they were afraid of Jesus after he cast the demons out of the men. They are afraid of him. They ask him to leave. They're afraid. Um, The disciples, after Jesus stilled the storm, they were afraid. This is a biblical pattern. So if the people in the crowd were afraid here, that would be right. That would be appropriate. It would make sense. It would match a little bit of a pattern that Matthew's been establishing up to this point. Uh, People in scripture do fear the holy. But whatever the word is, whether it's fear, whether it's awe, the people have a surprised reaction that causes them to respond strongly. What they just saw is a big deal. Now, the second thing the passage says is not just that they were afraid. It says that they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They glorified God. Please remember, yes, it is amazing that this man walks, right? That's the point of the walking. It's, it's meant to amaze you. It is not expected. It is not a normal thing. But they are not really glorifying God because this man walked. They are glorifying God for forgiving this man. Right? That's the deeper meaning of all of this. That's the whole point. It's why the scribes were angry. It's why he made this man to walk in the first place. The healing of this man, at first glance, seems like the bigger thing. But because of what Jesus says in advance, it's the smaller thing. Right? The bigger thing is the harder claim to prove that he's forgiven. Right? That's the substance of all of this. That's where the blasphemy accusation comes from. The whole reason this is so huge is that this is forgiveness of sins against a holy God that we're talking about here. He is forgiven and they can see it. And so they glorify God. They lift up their hearts. They are amazed that this man has been forgiven. This is natural. This is is right. People should glorify God with amazement more often than we do. Amazement is the reason the people in that crowd were created to begin with. Awe for God is the reason they were all made. Go through the scriptures. Isaiah 43, 7 speaks of his people whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. They were made to glorify God in all of their lives. And and this is just another instance when they should do that. They should be glorifying God in their hearts. They should be ascribing greatness to him. Um, They see God for who he is and they esteem him highly in their hearts. They were made for this. They are actually fulfilling their purpose as human beings when they are worshiping here. That's what they were made for. They were made to think highly of God. They They were made to glorify him in their hearts so that when they thought of him, they thought great thoughts. That's why we were made too. God's own glory is the reason why he does everything. It drives everything. It motivates everything that he does. Isaiah 43, 25 says, God forgives sins. Why? For the sake of his own glory. Psalm 25, David prays, 
For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Pardon my guilt for your name's sake. It's another way of saying, God, pardon my guilt so people will see that you are great. He's glorifying God. First John tells us that our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He's telling us why our sins are forgiven. Why? So that we will think much of him, so that we will make much of him, so that we will lift him up highly in our hearts, not just as a, 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 a part of our exercises on Sunday mornings, but actually so that all of our lives will be obsessed with the fact that he has forgiven us. Amen. In Ephesians 1, 6, Paul says that we have been adopted and forgiven and rescued by Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Think of all that's packed into that. He saves us so we'll see his grace, so that we'll see what he's like, and then we'll glorify him because what we see is so amazing and beautiful and profound and so unlike us. That's the design. Psalm 79. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Deliver us, atone for our sins. Lord, because of who you are and so that we can see who you are, save us, O God. In other words, Lord, when you forgive us, you are letting us, letting all of us see the pinnacle of your greatness. We are seeing your greatness at its point of maximum focus. Right? You are doing the greatest thing that there is to do when you show kindness to people who don't deserve it. So we make much of you, Lord, because forgiveness and atonement and salvation are the hardest things possible. And in your wisdom and in your kindness, you executed on it and you didn't. This is why we were made. It's why we were made. Right? The reason our shorter catechism says that we were created is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? It is summarizing all of these texts of scripture that are telling us the reason why we exist. Modern people love to joke about or talk about the meaning of life. Right? Monty Python made a whole movie called The Meaning of Life. Right? <laughs> you won't find the meaning of life in that movie, by the way. Um, but the point is human beings obsess over this question and it is on every page of scripture. The reason you were made was to glorify the maker. The reason you were created was to glorify the creator. It's the meaning of life. It's the meaning for your life. And whenever our lives go off course so that we are not doing that, we will find disorder. We will find things messed up and we will find ourselves wondering, why does my, my life feel so upside down and it's because we have gone off the path from the thing that he, we were designed and made for and that means we are malfunctioning and it means that we need forgiveness i have two things to say as we as we close and the first is i was always told in my sermons not to not to do that in preaching class so i just broke a rule you're never supposed to say in conclusion because then everyone thinks you better be done in two minutes and then if it ends up being five minutes, everyone's sad. But I want to say two things as we wrap, and that's this. The first is I want to address those who aren't Christians. You may be interested. You, you came to church after all. 
um, or you're younger, maybe you're a kid, you've grown up in the church, but these haven't been, been your truths that you have held in your heart and that you believe and treasure them for yourself. You've been taught to say these things, you've been taught to believe these things, and yet they haven't become your own yet. And so I want to make an appeal to you. And it's, evangelist, it's an evangelistic appeal, uh, as it should be. And that means that I'm appealing to you that you would believe this gospel, that you would believe not only that you need forgiveness of sins, but that God stands ready to give it. This man's sins were forgiven by faith. That means he trusted that Jesus could lift his burdens. He trusted that Jesus could lift his sins. He trusted that he could have peace with God. And he may not have known the fancy language or the theological jargon that helps explain it, but he did believe that he had sin and that Jesus could help him. He believed that Jesus was the one who could deal with it. And I want to make that very same appeal to you. You may have a very sophisticated knowledge of the Bible and theology, or you may have next to none. You just know that you're guilty. You know that you're a sinner and you know that you can't forgive yourself. You need God to do that. And if that's you, I will tell you what God has said. He has said this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel. The other stuff comes later, right? The sophisticated stuff comes later. The learning, the growing deeper, the, it's all a package deal. It's part of being a disciple. The more you know Jesus, the more you want to know Jesus and grow as a disciple. But first, you must take that step of admitting your sin and repenting and trusting Jesus to be your savior. And he is ready to do that. The invitation is not empty. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You may have a whole list of things in your life that you think are the most important things in your life. But do you know that you need forgiveness of sins? He stands ready to do that. The second group I want to appeal to is those of you who are believers in Christ, you're followers of Jesus, you know Christ as Savior, you've, you believed it intellectually, and perhaps there was a time when just the thought of it brought you to tears, but are you still captivated and convinced by it, by the importance of forgiveness of sins? Have you lost that amazement? Have you heard it so often that you think, nah, this is... This is normal to me now. Make this a matter of prayer in your own life if you are not amazed by the truth of forgiveness of sins. But also I want to ask you this. Are you persuaded that this matters for the world? Right? That, that this message about Christ adopting and saving people, it's, it's not just a message for those who are here right now who are convinced. It's a message that we're commanded to preach to all people everywhere. Jesus says, there's a harvest out there ready to be gathered in. Are you doing your part to obey that? Are, are you sharing that saving message when you have an opportunity? Are you looking for those opportunities? Are you proactive about finding opportunities? Do you know unforgiven people? Maybe we should address the more fundamental question. Is the forgiveness of sins precious to you? Then don't keep it to yourself. Right? Think, think of if everyone in your life had locked it down. Think of if everybody in your life had kept that message to themselves, assumed the truth of it, treasured it in their own hearts, but they didn't share it with anybody else around them. Imagine, where would you be? 
If your parents hadn't told you the gospel, if that friend in high school hadn't told you uh, about the gospel, if, if that other person that you knew didn't invite you to church, if everybody just said, no, they'll never be interested and just kept it to themselves, where would you be? There is a world of yet unforgiven people walking those streets, working alongside of you, living alongside of you, in your own household maybe even. And they are bearing the weight of their sins and they're being crushed by them. And because their sin hasn't been forgiven, they're lost and without real lasting hope in the world. Their hope is shallow and it's fleeting. They don't know God. And the one thing they need, they must be told. Paul says, how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? You may not be a preacher, but you can invite people to hear the word. You may not consider yourself the greatest evangelist. That's okay. I'm seriously not. But you know a message that saves. And you know a place where they can hear that message. Right? You can invite your friends. You can invite those you meet to come and hear the word. God says that this word doesn't return void. That this word works powerfully. He says that it pierces the heart. And so let me encourage you. Invite others. Forgiveness is worth it. Forgiveness is precious. Christ is worth it. Let's make sure that the world hears that message loud and clear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we have forgotten what a miracle forgiveness of sins is, would you remind us? If we have neglected the beauty of pardon for our sins... Freedom from guilt in life and no fear in death. Would you stir us up? Show us again the need to take this message to others. Oh God, this is a, this is a world that needs to know that Jesus Christ will forgive. Make us faithful to tell of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.